Welcome to The Impostress. The Impostress is hosted by me, Michael Knox, and Graham Drew, two rather insecure frauds who will be exploring the motivating and debilitating experiences we all have with imposter syndrome, with a sneaky suspicion that it might just be your superpower if you let it. to a very special edition of The Imposterous. This is a very special edition of The Imposterous. It's our 50th episode. 50 episodes and almost exactly one year. Who'd have thought that, eh? We both want to say thank you to some amazing guests that have shared anecdotes, stupid stories about guitars going into volcanoes, and most importantly, made us all feel a little less alone in the weird thoughts that we have in our head. And this week's episode is a really special one. When Michael and I were putting together a sort of wish list of guests, this person was right at the very top. It's the H of BBH, Sir John Hegarty. And a bit of a bucket list for both of us, really, because in pretty much every way you can think about it, he's a legend. Not only has he done the iconic work that we all know, you know, from Levi's and Haagen-Dazs and things like that, but also he started Saatchi and Saatchi. He started TBWA. And he also started BBH. That's one hell of a legacy. And if anybody knows how to do this crazy, stupid job we all found ourselves doing, it's him. And he's got great stories, stories about the work, stories about dogs. And he doesn't like being called sir that much. So obviously, we did that as much as we could. So sit back, buckle in, Sir John Hegarty. Fantastic. Wonderful. Lovely. John, I have to ask you, do we do we address you as Sir John or no, just John? You, no, just John, please. It okay. is correct. You know, what they say to you is there is a school of thought which says it is always Sir John, which I think is just nonsense. But if you're giving a talk or anything like that, you get introduced as Sir John Hegarty. Da, 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 da. John will now talk about, you know, that's the way yeah. I like it. Yes. So please call me John. <laughs> were, you, were you comfortable? Were you always comfortable with Sir John, or was there a time where, you know, in because you were knighted in 2007, weren't you? That's right, yeah. It's very odd, actually. I don't really think about it. I don't absolutely think about it, because nobody addresses me as Sir John, so it's something in the background, and it's just a, a sort of a thing that's there. I don't you, you get don't, up you and don't go, insist on wow. Sir John at home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Does Philippa, my wife, refer to me as... Would Sir John like? <laughs> <laughs> I'd be going for a bit. I don't, of that. don't you worry. I don't think so. I don't think that's gonna. I, I seriously think that is not gonna happen. <laughs> but anyway, well, welcome to the imposterous, the imposterous Sir John Hegarty. Um, I recently yep. heard you describe yourself as a jobbing art director working to have better ideas each day, and this strikes me as a healthy relationship with what is essentially a self-imposed challenge. What's your secret? How does this not turn you inside out with the thought of having to find a better idea every day? <laughs> well, I think if you're excited by ideas, you're excited by what they can do, how they can change things, then the quest for ideas is always there. You always sort of, you know, you want to make things better. Uh, so seeking them out, finding them, 
being part of creating them. Sometimes they come from you. Sometimes they're you're working with somebody else and it emerges and they came with the initial thought and you're then part of it. It's just exciting. You know, ideas change the world. You know, Caslon Bold Extra Condensed won't change the world, but an idea will. And that's what I think is exciting. I've always been, that's why I got into advertising because I loved ideas. And is that an addiction? Is that an addiction to ideas? Do you find yourself now just having ideas because you're, you're thinking? <laughs> Well, there's no question that the more you do something, the better you get at it, uh, and the more you're relaxed you are around it. Uh, therefore, constantly engaging in ideas gets you to them, not necessarily faster, but it opens them up in a way which is speedier, and therefore you can explore them more. But the more you do it, certainly, I think, the better you get at it and the more relaxed you become around it. But I've always been sort of relaxed around having ideas, as I said. I have a confession to make, Sir John. Um, Sir gonna... John, this is where you do address me, Sir John. No, quite right, yes. Well, well I'm used. Not, I'm not sure forgiveness is going to be forthcoming, but go ahead. Um, I, was, I was actually interviewed for a podcast last year and I stole one of your quotes because I was looking for interesting things to say. And you said, do interesting things and interesting things will happen to you. That's exactly right. Yep. Disarmingly insightful, I thought. And it brings me on to that thought. Was, what kind of role do you think fate plays in finding ideas? Is it about that, you know, you let ideas find you? You say try and relax, but, you know, if you've got a brief and a mm. deadline, it's actually quite hard. I mean, or, you know, or do you just sort of, is that the skill that you just have to trust your instincts? Yeah. You do. You have to do it. I mean, I, 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 again, I have to. That is, by the way, the quote. It's do interesting things and interesting things will happen to you. That comes from when people said to me, do you have a five-year plan? I said, I know I have a five-minute plan um, I, because I'm just aware of what's around me at this moment in time. The whole sense of, you know, I, I, I constantly say to people, I do my best thinking when I'm not thinking. And that's a sense of allowing it to come in, allowing yourself to be open, allowing thoughts to come through, recognize them, be able to reflect on them, uh, and sort of conjure up ways of making them work. So there is a sense of, you know, some people say there is a kind of, I mean, one of your questions, well, is there a sort of religious quality to ideas? I think there's a spiritual quality to ideas. I think because you're, you're, you're creating something from nothing. It's like, it's like the virgin birth, isn't it? I mean, you know, Yes. God knows how she got away with that. Honestly, it was a virgin birth. It wasn't me, you know. Um, <laughs> good line, I think. Nobody's really tried it. It's you should have gone into PR. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but there is a sort of sense of that wonderful thing about you're creating something from nothing. And I think this is the other thing that's exciting about ideas. There's nothing there. There's a blank piece of paper. You, ha you have this idea, you write it down, you put it down, and then you say, this is how... It should be articulated. This is how it should be reviewed. This is how it should be looked at, because obviously that's part of it. You know, it's not just having the idea. It's how you execute that idea. But you've created something from nothing. And I think that's what is truly wonderful about it. I mean, I, you know, you think about, you know, on a grand scale, you know, J.K. Rowling sits down in a cafe with a pen and a pencil and a piece of paper and writes you know, um, her wonderful, wonderful books, Harry Potter. And you think she's created something from nothing. She's created a huge industry from this idea. And I think that's what 
makes them so exciting, so fantastic to be around and to be part of. But there is a spiritual quality to it. I'm, I'm sure of that, but not in the religious sense. So, so when it, I mean, when those things are happening, when the, when the pistons are firing, it is, you know, it's a thrilling thing to be part of, even if it's just all happening inside your own head. But when it doesn't happen, I mean, the sort of the theme of this podcast is around how we found how so many creators have imposter syndrome, how they sort of, because there is no rule book. And so therefore you kind of think, who the hell am I? I don't know what I'm doing. Everyone's looking at me for the answers and I don't have them. And I, I wonder, you know, because Michael and I were just chatting before this, and when we first were doing this podcast, it's like, who is the least imposterous person we can think of? And I think you may have been at the top of the list. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very kind of you. <laughs> so I shouldn't um, really be here then. So I should go something. Yeah. <laughs> I'd just yeah. love to ask you about self-doubt. If, if anyone's been there and done that, it's you. And I'm just curious if you've ever been plagued with it, if you still have it, or if you found a way of getting over it, or... What your relationship is with that? Well, it's always lurking in the background. It's always back in, you know, it's like it's like the devil on your shoulder. It's, you know, you really sure, John, you're just doing this, you're making it up, you're doing that. And you have huge doubts at times, but you do have to kind of sail through them. You do have to go, uh, it, it's going to work. Don't worry about it. I mean, I, I, I can, a number of times I can remember on certain pieces of work, a client turning to me and saying, John, are you sure this is going to work? And of course you say, absolutely. But the reality is you don't know. You don't know because we are hoping, we're assuming you're doing something. I never use the word original. I like to use the word fresh because there's no such thing as originality. But you're doing something that you, you can't really see how it's been done before, so it's got no precedent to it. So therefore, you're, you're exploring new territory and you go, I don't know, it may not work inside your head, but you have to believe in certain principles. It's different, it's daring, um, it's trying to break new ground. And if you, if you add all those things up and they're there, then there's a good chance that it's going to get noticed. It may not work the way you wanted it to, but it's going to get noticed. And that's the first thing I say. If you're not noticed, then go home now. No, no point. You know, because, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of ideas. Supposedly, we're supposed to see something like 5,000 messages a day. Yes. I don't know how they measure that, but, you know, anyway, whatever it is, it's a huge amount. So your first responsibility is to be noticed. So I always kind of rely on that. That's, that's what I'm, I'm going to be noticed. And that's kind of so essential. But, you know, doubt and you're going to do things. that. I mean, the reality is that you're going to have mistakes. You're going to do things and they didn't work the way you wanted to work. You've got to accept that. I would say, really, if you're, if you're more than 50% of your work really works the way you wanted it to, then you're way ahead. You're way ahead. Um, I would think I'm lucky if I would got, get to 35%. But that hopefully that 35% was pretty amazing. The other 65% got noticed but didn't have the effect I wanted it to. And that's because of, you know, ideas going from idea to execution. It's such a mysterious journey. That in itself is kind of like, how did that work? Why did that, why did that all connect? And the other idea I had 
didn't quite connect. What was it about it? Why did that? And I think that's to do, the other thing too is I love working in film um, because I think that's where magic really happens. Um, and is it? Yeah, and I, yeah, because I, I just think it's really, really amazing how you go from a piece of paper, we used to say from paper to celluloid, of course, you don't do that anymore, but, you know, but it, the, the principle, yeah. you understand the principle I'm saying. And it's always been to me the, kind of one of the exciting things about working in film, but you don't ever know. You read it, you look at it, you think about it, you go, God, this could be good, that could work, it's got to happen. But there are so many steps that are going to occur in that journey to getting it onto a piece of film. And just one of them going wrong could destroy the whole thing. So you've got to get everything lined up, which is why you become paranoid about making sure you get the right director, the right casting, the right scenes, the right timing, the right music, the right... All of those things all can either make it or break it. I'm just interested in, in your opinion then on I don't know as an answer. Uh, and, and I mentioned that you say when, when a client asks you, so John, maybe a client yeah. would just call you John, John, is this going to be great? And, and you wholeheartedly say, yes, it is. This is going to be fantastic. But then in the same time, yeah. when you talk about film and the magic of film, the, the, the trust that you put in a lot of people around you means that you are, you know, not the expert. You are, you are one of a, a team of experts. What do you think about this, people confessing to, I don't know? I think it's an honesty. And I think in the end, it, it, it all needs honesty. Um, you, you've got to be honest with your inner circle of people you're dealing with. Say, this is where my doubts are. This is where I think it could go wrong. This is where, if we don't get that casting right. I mean, so often I've found in film, getting the casting right is absolutely crucial. Absolutely crucial. And if you don't get that right, it, it, it doesn't carry it through. Because I've always tried to sort of write and create narrative advertising, a, a storytelling, because I'm, I'm, that's what turns me on, telling a story in that period of time. And casting has therefore crucial in that, because you've got to make sure that people understand the person believes in that person telling the story. And I've had huge rows with directors on, on that. And by and large, I've been right. And uh, it, it, because you really do feel if that person isn't believed, then this isn't going to work. So, but you've got to have a group of people around you that you're honest with. Of course, you're trying to give your client confidence. You're trying to say to the client, don't worry. You're in good hands here is what you're saying, really. This will work. And then you're, you're in a group. You've got to be kind of like, right, guys, uh, this is what we've got to do. This is what we've got to get right. And that is and the importance crucial. of confidence, isn't it? That, that, is, that is like what, you know, this podcast, you know, and why it's taken us 50 episodes to get you on, yeah. as Graham mentioned, being the oh. least <laughs> imposterous person <laughs> you that we know. <laughs> well, yeah. So it's, yeah, so film, I find film, is, I mean, constantly, constantly, constantly kind of challenging. Um, and the more I work in it, not that I work in it a lot now because I'm now doing other things, the more you realise how little you know and how much can go wrong. You say you're doing other things, and I, I wanted to talk about that for a second, because actually one of my um, creative directors has just started your Business of Creativity course. And, oh, um, right. Oh, fantastic. Good. Yeah, and I, I had the pleasure of watching one of the episodes in your incredible purple suit. Which is, <laughs> <laughs> it's good, isn't it? It's, I've got a great good. wardrobe of suits, actually. It's yeah. strong. <laughs> it's a strong look. Um, but I, 
I think if there's anything that you know has has started to transition like genuinely over the industry over the last few years is creatives getting into the boardroom proper you know not just starting their own agencies but actually getting onto the business side of things you know so often I don't think we had the confidence to do it you know you kind of go yeah excel spreadsheets on my kryptonite and you know if I'm just sort of ran away from it and I think more and more we're kind of getting our fingers onto all of the buttons rather than just half of the buttons yeah do you feel that that's that creators are changing, that the industry is changing, or is it something that's just completely long overdue? And well, so many people like to say that creators should be in charge of the business because that's fundamentally what people are buying, you know, and they want to buy from the yeah. person who made it. Well, th there's a very good argument to say um, uh, that if you're running a creative business, then creative people have got to be at the top of it. Mm. I mean, it's a kind of nonsense if you accept that. In the advertising world, creativity is fundamental. Then, if creative people aren't at the top of it, then it's never going to work. I mean, I, I I remember I met with John Lasseter of uh, Pixar, and he made that point very clearly. He said, if creative people aren't running a a, a studio, then it's not going to be a great studio. It's a very simple observation. And I think if you look back at the history of our industry, it was the creative people who made the difference. You know, the David Ogilvy's, the Bill Birnbach's. You know, Dan Wyden's, you know, in this country here in the UK, it was David Abbott and John Webster. Charles Saatchi was a creative guy. I mean, he went, he did go to kind of, you know, sort of running it as a business, but, but he put his creative stamp on it. And, you know, I think in the last 20 years, 25 years, we've stepped back um, and we've allowed management people to drive the business. And, you know, it was very interesting. I was asked when Sorrel was kicked out of, WPP and uh, the FT called me and said, John, would you like to make a quote on his legacy? And I said, he won't have a legacy. And I said, I remember the journalist going, well, what do you mean he won't have a legacy? I said, he won't be remembered. It was just a financial construct. There was no idea there. And I said, you know, and I went and I said, the industry is made by people who have ideas. And I said to him, to prove my point, I said, um, what do you think of Marion Harper? And there was this distinct silence. He said, who, 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 who's Marion Harper? And I said, Marion Harper was the American who started Interpublic and started the whole agency group thing in 1967, 68. Now, nobody has remembered Marion Harper. Hmm. He started it. So if anybody should be remembered, he should be remembered. Because it was a financial construct. It wasn't an idea. And I said that, you know, the business is remembered by those who have ideas. And I think we've lost that in the last 20, 30 years. We've stepped back and we've allowed other people to run it. And we've got to take control. And that way, if we take back control, and I don't mean in a sort of megalomaniac way, but we've got to be at the top of it. The fact that you can't read a spreadsheet, I can't, doesn't matter. There are people who can do that for you. You know, and all sorts of things I can't do. I get people in to do it who are very, very good at it. And uh, But what you do is you have ideas, you understand principle, you understand philosophy, you understand why something is important, why it isn't important, and that's what a client comes in to buy. He, doesn't, he or she doesn't come in to buy a, someone who can read a spreadsheet. You know, as my, my partner, Nigel Boger, always said, you know, you know, clients don't buy us for our contact reports. They buy us for our ability to come up with brilliant ideas. And that's until we get back to that um, and we put ideas and creativity at the center of what we do, the industry won't be revived. 
it will go on being dictated to by numbers people, algorithms, data, all of the things that a sort of analytical mind wants to sell you because they understand it. And I understand, I, I completely realized that. I understand that. But, you know, beyond that, what's the idea? And how much yeah. of that? And that's how much of that idea, that, I guess, commitment and confidence and power in the idea, do you think is an expression of the individual? I mean, how much, how all in are you yeah. on ideas? <laughs> Well, I, I think, you know, I always define creativity. The one thing you've got to do is define creativity. Now, there are lots of definitions of creativity, and some people say you actually can't define it, which is, I think, a bit of a cop-out. So I define it like this. I go, on the basis that we're all creative, everybody's creative. That's what separates us out from the animal kingdom. You know, and I always constantly say, you know, dogs don't get up in the morning and go, I can't bear this. I don't like the way my hair is. I've got to change it. I'm going to move it on. They don't. Right. We do. We have all those kind of daft thoughts. That's a part of being creative. So if you accept that, then I, I, I talk about creativity as an expression of self. That's what it is. It's an expression of self. So don't get a definition of it confused with how you do it by putting different ideas together, by matching that with that. By do Those are how you do it. What is it? It's an expression of self. And so often you hear a film director, a painter, a writer, whatever, talking about their work, and they so often say, I wanted to say this. And that is them just saying it's an expression of self. I am expressing what I feel. And that's crucial to any creative business, any creative idea. It is an expression of that person. How would you distinguish that from art then? Because, I mean, a definition of art is art is expression. You know, art is anything. Yeah, that well, yeah. You, you can, you, you, yeah. I mean, art carries a sort of an implication of a certain type of creativity, which is a painted creativity or a, a sort of entertaining creativity. But, you know, I, I said the other day, it's like imagination. Imagination is, is uh, creativity's raw material. Mm -hmm. It's the raw material that creativity uses, but it, you, creativity then expresses it in a hundred different ways. You know, a novel, is a novel a piece of art? No, it's not. We use these words to kind of define certain types of creativity. You know, in filmmaking, they talk about art house because it comes from, in quotes, an artistic point of view, which I've always been slightly suspicious of, but, you know. I'm actually now quite distracted with the idea of next when I come home tonight and I see my dog, I'm going to wonder if she's having an existential crisis. <laughs> she's just hungry. Crisis, yeah. <laughs> yes, the dog just, the dog really wants to talk to you about how it feels. I'm sorry. You know, this is, I, I, I'm, I don't feel I'm in the right environment and the ability to express my ideas yet. <laughs> just look at you me. You need going, to change. You need to change, Graham. It's not good enough. <laughs> I can't do this anymore. Enough yeah. of the I'm, I'm, that's it, I'm out. <laughs> in 2012, you were asked to describe the ad industry in one word, and you said exciting. Given everything that we've just talked about 10 years later, is the answer still the same? Is what we do still exciting? Or is it just potentially exciting? Or, you know, or... Yeah, I, I, I mean, I still would describe it as exciting. I, I, I think it's, it's lost confidence. Uh, it's 
it's sort of uh, it's not proposing ideas that are groundbreaking and changing. Um, I think it's lost principle, but it's still an exciting industry. You know, somebody walks into you and says, "Look, I want you to help help me change the fortunes of this brand, this company, or whatever." It's a wonderful. It's a, it's it's so exciting. I mean, how many people get the opportunity to do something like that? to change the way people perceive something. And here's lots of money to do it. <laughs> That's the other thing. I always used to love, used to have this thing when I, I was, when I was creative directing and I, somebody would, you know, one of my people would come to me and say, oh, John, one of our creative teams is a bit unhappy, you know, and you get this on God, you know, so, and I'd have to go and see them. And I, I, I used to sort of go, in, but we had offices then, which I, by the way, I would, say, get back to having offices. But anyway, I used to go into their office and I close the door and I say, I, I understand you're, you're a bit unhappy. And you'd sort of get a kind of, yeah, well, you know, we're not. And then I'd say, look, can I just say something here? I want to talk about how I see your job, all right? Now, first of all, we've got this lovely office, middle of Soho, wonderful place to be, hot and cold running coffee downstairs, full of really exciting people, people you can chat to and talk things through and stuff like that. And then uh, I come in and I give you a brief and I talk about it and I say, you know, have some time to come up with a brilliant idea. I come back, when you've had a brilliant idea, I take that idea uh, to the client and I do my best to sell it to the client. And when the client's bought it, the client spends hundreds of thousands of pounds on making it and then millions of pounds uh, on telling everybody about your idea. Now, what bit of this do you not like? And I will change it. And they sit there going, yeah, you're right, John. <laughs> so, you know, if you look at our industry like that, I mean, it's phenomenal, isn't it? I guess creatives spend time either in best case scenario, which you've just described, or worst case scenario, which is kind of like the, the unhappy part. And there's not really much in between. So the kind of like having an idea is torture tested by your own thoughts of how could this be better? Do yeah. you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think there is a sort of sense of feast or famine about it. Yeah. Um, but I think you, you, that's why I say actually to be a great creative person, I think you've got to be an optimist. You've got to believe that everything you do is going to happen because otherwise why would you do it? Why would I bother? You know, because it's a funny little ad. Nobody's going to see it. Client's probably not going to buy it why should I bother? I'll just give them something average. And once you do that, you become a cynic and cynicism is the destruction mm. of creativity. Mm. So you've got to remain an optimist, even though, you know, deep in the recesses of your mind, you know, one in 10 ideas is, are just going to go through. If you're lucky, it might be one in 20. But that one in 20 is just the one that you then hopefully make fantastic. I, I, wholeheartedly buy into that one i mean one of the best bits of advice i got as i was going up is that as you're in the privileged position of leading people you need to be that font of optimism you have to try and mm. pump belief into your team in in, in whatever yeah. way you can even yeah, if you yourself are doubting it you have to sort of because you're yeah. completely as soon as that sort of cynicism creeps in it absolutely kills the process it does yeah. right you just end up going oh fuck you just give them what they want I don't care anymore. Yeah, and just give them what they want. Why bother? You know, yeah. It's Friday, it's Friday afternoon. Why should I go back and work on it some more? Because it's not. It's Friday afternoon. All the guys, everybody's meeting at the pub. Let's go and have a drink. Let's not worry about it. It's not going to change the world. And that's it. It's your beginning, your decline. So how did you keep 
yourself honest on that on that one then how did you keep yourself optimistic is there anything that uh, you could pass on i think by nature i am an optimist i'm i always say i'm cursed as an optimist um archbishop tutu used to describe it as i'm 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 imprisoned by optimism which was a lovely kind of you know uh, way of thinking about it but i think i think you you well because you look at what you've done or some of the things you've done and you've seen the effect of them that it, it it constantly reminds you of what the possibility can be how it can work what it can do so that keeps you going you know it's like you know if you're a sports person you you every time you walk onto that pitch that whatever you you're never always going to win you're going to you know you're going to lose you're going to you know that's not going to go right that's going to go wrong but you always walk out believing you're going to win and you've got to have that attitude and it's a bit like that you you you, you know you, you're going to lose some you're going to not be able to get there you know you know so that's part of it and if you don't accept that then you know um you'll you will definitely fail and cynicism will creep in and as i as we constantly keep saying that's the end of it what if you've never won i mean i can i can sort of I could say easy for you to say, John. <laughs> Sir John. <laughs> Sir John. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people what that haven't you... had the, the the big idea yet. You know, whether or not you're at the start of the idea of your career, or maybe you're at the middle or near the end, and you still haven't had the big one. How do you yeah. keep? How do you keep that one? You know, optimistic. What would you other than? Just... Well, you you, you you have to look at small successes. You you have to look at kind of what you, you must have done something there must be something that keeps you getting <laughs> you must look at something <laughs> you know i think this is the best swing ticket ever designed for a clothing store or something like that it's a good day <laughs> so there's got to be something that you've done i mean otherwise you know again i i use my analogy as a sports person you know you walk on to to, to whatever it is you're playing Mm. And and if you keep losing, and if you you've never won, you've never hit a great shot, you've never done, then you, you've got to go. Well, maybe I'm in the wrong business. <laughs> maybe I'm <laughs> in the wrong thing. But there's got to be something. I'm always fascinated by, for some bizarre reason, I play golf about twice a year, and throughout the whole round, I mean, there are an unmitigated number of atrocious shots, but there are about two or three that are truly Tiger Woods, you know, in my mind, and those two or three shots are the ones that keep me going because I forget the others and I just remember that and I think yeah. to myself now all I've got to do is now turn those three shots into 80 shots and I've got a great score so you you, you focus on the great not not the bad yes I always say people say to me do you learn from your mistakes and I say no absolutely not because you're always trying to do something different, something fresh. So what value does what I did before bring to this idea? Probably nothing at all, because I'm trying to do something completely different. Um, and it's not like, you know, you're a research scientist, which says, well, if you do that, do this. We made a mistake there. We shouldn't have done that. And you can understand in that situation how looking back at mistakes pushes you forward. But if you're a creative person trying to constantly break new ground, You've got to have the constant confidence that this is going to work. And if you let previous failures creep in, they'll they'll begin to, to restrain that idea. So, you know, do I learn from mistakes? Not really. 
I know Michael's got the wrap-up question, but I'm going to I've got the wrap-up question, but I'm, I'm going to sneak one in. I'm going to sneak one in. Okay. <laughs> it's episode 50, Graham. Go for your life. Yeah, We're celebrating that. here. Where do you think is the most creative place to be is right now? If I'm Where a is it? Yeah. Inside your head. Right. Inside your head. I don't, you know, you. I think the brilliant thing about the world of creativity is it can happen anywhere. <laughs> and I don't think that, I mean, obviously, you know, you can be inspired by the place you're in by being around other people, of course, that is going to affect you. But I don't think you should worry about where you are. It's worry about what you are. That's the most important thing. And that can change everything, you know. I, you know, it's a funny thing. I, 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 I like taking up kind of counterpoints of view. And, and so I was with somebody the other day and they said, you know, and travel broadens the mind. And I went, no, it doesn't just fucks the world up. I said, well, you know, so what do you mean? I said, well, if you look at it, you know, Shakespeare never travelled, never went to Venice. He didn't have to go to Venice to write The Merchant of Venice. He wrote Romeo and Juliet without ever going to Italy. You know, did Plato ever travel? I'm not sure he did, really. Hitler, now he travelled. Poland, Austria, Russia, you know, Attila the Hun, he travelled. <laughs> I just, you know, so I just like the idea of kind of turning it on his head. But the point about that was to say, you know, you travel in your mind. And, you know, that's where you go. And, of course, you can go anywhere you like, can't you? There's nobody saying you can't go there. You need a visa or the flight's booked. Just go there in your mind. Open it up. Be there. But then, you know, then, of course, you know, you counter that by saying it is interesting being in interesting places. An anti-travel agency from you coming quite soon, aren't we? Yeah. yeah that's home. It's called home. <laughs> oh, we just did that. So to stay in your mind, or, or at least in your head, or in your perception to wrap this up, can I ask you a question about success? Yeah. And how comfortable or uncomfortable are you with the thought of saying to yourself or someone saying you are a success? Is that one challenge too many? I don't, you know, obviously, you know, you give a talk and people go through your career and say, this is Sir John Hegarty, did it, he went to there, did that, did that, got there. And you think, God, blimey, who is this bloke? You know, and I do actually say to people, can you make that as short as you possibly can? Because I'd like to talk. I don't know. I just think you, you I'm very lucky in that sort of I wake up each day and say, how oh, is this going to be interesting? I don't wake up each day and go, I'm this successful creative director, art director who set an agency up. I, I don't think about it. I just think it, you know, today is the most important day. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I can make a difference today and work on that. I don't, I don't ever think about it. I've had failure. You know, people forget that. People forget when we set up TBWA in 1973, you know, and I come out of Saatchi and Saatchi, and it, it was in the wilderness for about three or four years, and people were, had written me off saying, no, he's gone. But I knew I was go it was going to work, so I had faith in what I was doing. So I've known not, it not working. I've experienced, in quotes, failure. And it's important to experience that. Uh, and to be aware of it, but not to be in awe of it yeah. or frightened of it. Thanks for joining us today on The Imposterous. Sir John Hegarty, I, I will just say, when you accepted my LinkedIn request and I said, are you a chatbot? Because I didn't think you would accept my LinkedIn request. You said, no, I'm not a, I'm not a robot. So thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, that moment. Good. Hope, hope not. All right. Lovely talking to you both. Have a great time. It was Cheers. Bye, guys. Joy, Bye. John. Thank you so much. Thank you. This 50th episode of The Imposterous wraps up Season 2. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank all of our guests, all of our contributors, as well as all of our listeners, you who make this such a popular podcast. 
We will be taking a short break and we will be back in the new year and we will be bringing another twist as we always do. Have a wonderful end of year and we'll speak to you in the new year. Ooh, I bet you